welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com's Better Rivals podcast. My name is Oscar Aparicio, and this week, Jimmy GQ is indeed a man of the people. He may or may not have eaten a PB&J sandwich while talking to Matt Mayoko during an interview this week. Gerard Brown joins us to run down the news and preview the Vikings game. Fellow Scouting Academy alum, super excited to have him on. Jared, are you there? I am here, my friend. Thanks so much for having me on. Looking forward to this. Jared Brown, you are a teacher. You did some of the scouting reports for NFL 1000. You did some of the NFL Draft 400, both the Bleacher Report. Uh, and, of course, you are a Scouting Academy alum, which uh, David and I went through as well. So that's how we got connected with you and your work. Uh, why the hell is it that you like the 49ers? Uh, and why is it that, uh, that you're even here talking about them? There's a bit of locale that kind of plays into that Northern California guy. I'm about an hour, hour and a half north of San Francisco. So until the recent move to Santa Clara, uh, just sort of region dictated that. Also family grew up uh, with a grandmother that watched Niners games. So I watched a few with her uh, and found out that I was not terribly good at football, still played it, but that I was bright enough to make myself a passable football player. And so uh, when the playing days ended, needed an opportunity to stick with it, uh, stay involved, and uh, 49ers, obviously fandom, but then the sort of writing evaluation kept me involved with football as a hobby uh, as I move into now, like you mentioned, career as a teacher and high school football coach, just sort of all-encompassing, which uh, my fiance absolutely loves that I'm just always talking about football, I'm sure. Now, one of the questions I was like to, to ask folks is, is what their favorite Niner memory is. Of course, if you've been listening to the show enough, you know that mine's probably uh, the Vernon Davis, Alex Smith uh, divisional catch. I mean, that's just, you know, it was the rebirth of the franchise in our adult lives. It was a great play. I absolutely love that play. I love everything about it. What, what's your favorite Niner memory? I have two. I would say that I really, really like the Alex Smith to Vernon Davis sort of the catch uh, reborn, if you will. And like you mentioned, it sort of really reinvigorated or re-energized the franchise. My second favorite, and, and probably my first, if we're being honest, is Patrick Willis's hit on Brad Smith when he played for the Jets. Oh, uh, man, the one, one where the, he just about killed him? Yeah, Good it was Lord, one of the first times in my life where I just realized how violent football was. And I am in no means a violent guy. I don't enjoy confrontation. Um, but I, I sort of sat there stunned uh, at the brutality of it and uh, – at the same time, just absolutely in love with all of that Patrick Willis uh, was and is. So I would say that that is uh, probably my favorite 49ers moment. Oh, man, that is uh, that's some deep psychology there. I feel like we need another show just to unpack that thing. <laughs> yeah, once once that came out, I realized that I may need to uh, see now that I'm saying it out loud that there may be something going on there. Some uh, oh, I love it. Psycho I love it. And analysis that might need to happen there because uh, just. There may just be getting some, real, just yeah. getting real, real at the top of the show. I love it. Yeah, some some psychological phase of my uh, toddler years that I clearly didn't get over. All right, well let let's get to let's get to the rundown and let's get to the show. And, and we open up with with a toast, a toast to our fallen comrade, one Mister Jarek McKinnon. We here at the Better Rivals Podcast, we have an official Jarek McKinnon beer. It is Austin Beerworks Flavor Country. It comes in a purple can, much like Jarek McKinnon came to the 49ers. And then he shed that purple cape and got some amazingness, an amazingness that was robbed from us too soon. So we raise our glasses here. Let me go ahead and open this bad boy. Because how we lament the final play of practice, 
The handpicked running back, the anointed one, now begins his long road to recovery. How cutting on air can be so cruel. The crisp bite of Santa Clara air wreaking havoc on our star player's knee. His ACL just burst with excitement for what was to be a fantastic season for the dual third running back. We're not going to get to see Jarek McKinnon running the corner route on a sale concept in the red zone, stressing out those weak-ass middle-of-the-field defenders with spark numbers that would make Pete Carroll quiver with excitement. Ultimately, we're left with the Matt Breida train or the Alfred Morris car. I think it's a 92 Nissan, if I hear correctly. Uh, And ultimately, we're going to be robbed of a season and skill too soon. So here's the beer. Cheers to Jarek McKinnon. May he recover well. And hopefully, he's got fantastic doctors. All right, drinking my beer. It's really good beer, not going to lie. But uh, that's, that's the farewell, man. That's the farewell to McKinnon. It was over too soon. Now we're left with, with Breida or Morris. Which do you like out of the two? I think initially, I tend to lean towards Matt Breida. And the reason that I lean towards him is because I think stylistically – He's probably the closest to McKinnon. And so, you know, Kyle Shanahan, at least thus far, in my opinion, has shown that if he goes out and identifies offensive talent, at least at a skill player position, he's done a well enough job thus far that he kind of gets the benefit of the doubt. So if he went out, sought out Jarek McKinnon, and they gave him the contract that they did, then Kyle Shanahan must have had some exciting stuff in store. Now that that's over and you know your, your toast is a wonderful parting uh, of that uh, player, at least for now, and we'll see him next season. Now that we're moving on there, I think Breida is the closest in terms of a player that can emulate what Shanahan at least had in mind when, it, when you're looking just at the two comparatively. But certainly a step down, at least early on in his career. And it'll be interesting to see how Shanahan now sort of balances those carries and the roles that Morris and Breida split. How crazy that Morris just got on the team not that long ago, and here he is, could potentially be uh, a starter much earlier than anticipated. Well, we talked this offseason a bit about replacement-level players, and running back was an area where you can find replacement-level players off the street that actually succeed. And I think Alfred Morris is exactly an example of that. Now, the key, I think, for Matt Breida is going to be what he can do in the passing game. And he wasn't super amazing in the passing game this last year. It's something that he's worked on, sure, but it's not something that comes very, very naturally to him. And I think that's the key that Shanahan's going to miss. It's going to be really... Uh, providing multiple threats from what looks like base personnel. That was going to be the value of someone like Jarek McKinnon. You weren't going to tip your hand with your formation now, or rather with your personnel. Now you're going to have a team where if Alfred Morris is in there, you're probably going to lean run. And if Matt Breed is in there, well, then maybe you're probably going to lean run some more, or maybe he's the, the dual threat pass catcher. But you're not going to have a true real threat at receiver that you're going to see in base packages. And Kyle Juszczyk, sure, he's there, but he's not nearly as good at the receiving from the backfield as Juszczyk, I'm sorry, as, uh, as McKinnon. So it definitely, I think, limits what the team is able to do. But I don't think it's going to be that bad, mostly because Morris has proven that he can succeed in this scheme. Absolutely. And I think Shanahan, you know, ultimately thus far, at least in his tenure as 49ers head coach, has shown that he has an impressive ability to identify skill sets of the players on the field and then put them in positions to maximize those skill sets. I think that, you know, this this loss of McKinnon, 
if, if I could point to one player that I think actually might see an uptick in some sort of special ways that might really utilize his skills, I think Dante Pettis is going to be a player that you see run a lot uh, a lot more of those shorter routes. I could see him running some bubble screens, some tunnel screens, even some jet type stuff to really get him uh, working horizontally at the line of scrimmage and try and uh, use some of that speed. Obviously, Pettis is a wonderful return man, and, and he might kind of become that space player at sort of the short to intermediate levels of the field that they may have expected McKinnon to be. Yeah, I also think Richie James has an opportunity to get some some additional snaps in this area. Another very quick twitch athlete, someone who from the slot is able to do some things. And I know that he played a little bit from the backfield uh, in college as well. So that's something that that I'll be looking for him to do. I think that Shanahan will find other players to pick up that slack. I just think it won't be as effective because it won't. It, it'll be a little bit more predictable, if not all the way predictable. So. It sucks, and I hate it because he was the player that I was probably most excited to watch this year. And, and you know, that's, that's the way the, the story goes, though, and, and the team moves on. So other news in the rundown is going to be the final cut down to 53. Just when I learned how to pronounce Jeremiah Atauchu, he's no longer. Any of the players that were cut that surprised you on cut day? I think the one that surprised me the most was Joe Williams, and not because he's played particularly well, and he hasn't even practiced particularly well. I'm surprised about it from sort of an evaluation standpoint. Um, Obviously, when he was coming out of college, there were some questions about his commitment to football surrounding a lot of family issues, and I'm not knocking Joe Williams for that. And obviously, he had some some off-field stuff to work through, not in a negative standpoint, but he has life outside of football that he was dealing with. And Shanahan and Lynch were tremendous supporters of him. And what's surprising to me... And and actually, quite frankly, impressive is that they're willing to admit a mistake early and maybe not even a mistake, but to admit that they were able to identify stronger talent that they can keep around and to let a draft pick go this early in his career to me is an an impressive bit of self-reflection, of introspection. And it shows that they are still of the mindset that this team can be constantly getting better, even if it's just small tweaks here and there. You know, Williams probably at best third, maybe fourth running back. So not an immediate uh, high-level contributor. And yet they still see that as a position to evaluate and to get better at, uh, even when it is critical of their own performance. So to me, that was one of the most surprising cuts from an evaluation and team-building standpoint for sure. You know, I I totally agree with you in the fact that the cut was impressive only because it it is difficult for a team to not feel beholden to their draft picks, especially fourth round draft picks that you beat the table for and say, no, this is my guy. And that's exactly what Kyle Shanahan did. Kyle Shanahan lobbied John Lynch to put Joe Williams back on the draft board, even though he was completely off the draft board to begin with. And, And they, you know, they tried to hide him on IR for a year and then gave him a shot. He didn't do it, and they said, you know what, that's it. They didn't hang on for too long, which is great. They, frankly, they did the same thing with Jeremiah Atauchu, who was on a one-year prove-it deal, but his dead money is $2.75 million. That's the third highest dead money number on the cap this year. Same thing with Jonathan Cooper. He was someone who they brought in to be a starter. They paid him starter-esque money. He's going to have $2.4 million in dead money against the cap, and the team is basically saying, you know what, we tried it. We made a mistake. Other people won out. And I think that's an impressive place to be, and it shows good decision-making on at least the the outset, even if the initial decision-making wasn't all that great. Absolutely. And what beyond that, what's most, uh, what, what is also impressive to me, I should say, is that in terms of managing the salary cap, 
they're understanding sort of this, this business aspect, the financial aspect of player evaluation, and more importantly, valuation, and being able to identify not just skill sets and traits, but a, a particular monetary value that they can, uh, you know, quite frankly, afford to uh, give these players that balances their risk versus the potential reward that they they could get, right? A Tauchu, if he suddenly blows up as this impressive Leo with limited experience in San Diego, sort of being forced down that depth chart because of the better players that they had there, he steps up suddenly to become this wonderful Leo prospect. They've got him for nothing. And at the same time, if he doesn't, pan out as he apparently hasn't with them at least they can let him go with a little bit of flexibility in the cap to remain competitive this year and beyond as they continue to build the build the team so the the nfl is the, the cap is rising by about 10 million every year maybe more maybe less the, the salary cap is an accounting trick it's not nearly as important as it has been in years past but the one of the other stories in the rundown is that this year the Niners are, they have the, I think, fourth highest dead money in the league when, you know, when you take all of their final cuts. You've got the Bills, Cowboys, Giants, top three. The Bills actually have quite a bit of dead money, $53.1 million, and this is all per over the cap. Uh, and then the Niners come in fourth at $22.5 million. The two biggest contracts they're still paying dead money on, one, Navarro Bowman at $4.7 million, and two, Vance McDonald at $4.2 million. That is, I mean, that's a solid third of their dead money. And they're shedding those contracts. So, uh, you know, are you worried at all about the the size of dead money, or is it something where you're like, eh, not that big of a deal? I'm not really worried at all. Much like you mentioned, it's an accounting trick. And Parag Marate, for all of the the backlash that he's received over the last probably five years or so, he's actually done a wonderful job, at least you know recently, especially balancing some of these contracts. So it's something that drops almost immediately next year to very very little. Uh, true dead money in terms of overall roster impact and and salary cap impact. And as you mentioned, that number just continues to go up every year. It's becoming more and more and more of a facade, really. And if you've got good, uh, bright, quite frankly, business people in your uh, operations office, then they can play around with this pretty well. Again, it shows an impressive bit of uh, perspective that, you know, Navarro Bowman and Vance McDonald, both with over $4 million in dead money that they've let go. And quite frankly, you know, I know the Pittsburgh Steelers and their fan base are really excited about Vance McDonald suddenly being a, you know, tight end one on that roster. But Man, neither we've Bowman been, we've nor been McDonald. On that train. <laughs> exactly. I mean, the, the reality is that no one, they, those two guys, and, and I love Bowman and everything he did, you know, Bill Walsh was one of the best because he was willing to let a guy go a year too early as opposed to a year too late. And if that, at least, you know, in today's terms means a little eating a little bit of that money, you know, in terms of cost benefit analysis, I'd say the 49ers are still in the, in the positive there. Only other story here in the rundown because it's leading up to, to week one. So the only real big injuries, unfortunately, are going to be injuries. But I think that the the game, we played a game a few weeks ago with Joe McAtee from Turf Show Times, uh, and it was called Harry Potter Character or 49er because we had a lot of players at the bottom of that roster that were like, I don't know, that name sounds like it could be a Harry Potter character. And basically, that was an omen for success because Nazocha, Dwelly, and Antoine Exum, all on the opening day roster, all were a part of that game. And so you know how it goes. Uh, if it happens after, uh, then it must be as a, a result of. You know, that's, that's not fallacious at all. So I'm going to go ahead and say that uh, the game, the Harry Potter game, was the reason those players made the roster. And, uh, and you can't debate me on that because it's facts. Well, beyond facts, it's magic, really. That's right. I mean, there's, I'm not going to be the one to argue with uh, witchcraft and wizardry. So we're going to accept absolutely that that is 100% stone cold locked, the reason why those guys made the roster. 
I'm so happy you understand how this podcast works. It's great. Um, so let's get to the the actual preview of the Vikings game because we could spend a bunch of time talking about the fourth preseason game, but hey, look, it's the fourth preseason game for a reason. I think the important things that happened in that game were that, well, you've got a starting guard that is not a first-round pick, but at least that first-round pick made the roster. Uh, and, and so that's basically the big thing that happened, and Atahachu kind of worked his way out of a job. That's it. We've already talked about it. So let's talk about the Vikings. It's week one. Football is here. And that week one game is going to be pretty difficult. It's going to be a test against the best. So let's talk about what that Vikings team look like, looks like. Uh, and then let's talk a little bit about what the Niners are going to need, need to do in order to win that game. So first question, what the hell happens when Mike Shanahan looks at himself in the mirror? Because when you look at and you break down this Vikings defense, it's basically the defensive version of Kyle Shanahan. They are a complex defense. Of course, headed up by Mike Zimmer, who's the head coach, but he's had a defensive coordinator who's been with him for a very, very long time. And they play a complex base 4-3 and multiple coverage shells in the back end. Last year, they finished their regular season first in DVOA, first in points allowed. And they just do a lot of things that initially look like, yeah, okay, it's a pretty simple shell, pretty simple, maybe a split safety look or single safety look. And then right at the snap, they shift into something else and create confusion. And so as a quarterback... You're like, uh, I don't know what the hell is happening because my pre-snap diagnosis, I have to confirm really quickly, all the while everything is happening around me, and it's a defensive scheme that works to great effect. Absolutely, and it, it, they've got players at all levels. Daniil Hunter is arguably one of the most underrated pass rushers in the league, uh, a defensive end that is going to give, he'll give Joe Staley uh, a hard time even as a Wiley veteran. In terms of middle of the field, their linebackers are uh, – quietly probably a top five duo in the league they've got the four three shell but if we leave the the weak side linebacker out of it when you just look at eric kendricks who played at ucla and then anthony Barr, their strong side linebacker those two dudes are both really impressive athletes and what happens when you have athletes in you know sort of that second as second level defenders especially in today's nfl like you mentioned you can show something pre-snap and if you've got some speed and guys can disguise really coverages underneath but still get out uh, to, you know, to sort of physical landmarks on the field, whether they're the, the curl flat defenders or the hook curl defenders, whatever it may be, when those players don't have to immediately align in those positions because they have the speed, the lateral agility, they've got some hip turn and flexibility to get out to those spots before you – know, or, or rather you know, post-snap – what that does is gives a defensive coordinator a lot of opportunities to, you know, in theory, show something that looks incredibly digestible from the offense's perspective and in reality shapes or morphs into something much different post-snap when, you know, the time to analyze and process, at least offensively, specifically for offensive linemen and the quarterback, becomes much more difficult. We'll get to the linebackers in a second because I know that's that's your area of expertise. You you did that module for Scouting Academy, and so I know we're we're going to dig into the linebackers here in a minute. But before we get there, let's talk about the mul- the multiplicity of Harrison Smith and Mister Sendejo. Don't call me Pendejo, which I love his last <laughs> name. But every time I hear Sendejo, I always think Pendejo, just because you know that's just a word in Spanish that you know is idiot. It, it, for those of you who don't speak Spanish, Pendejo is like idiot. Sometimes it's asshole. It just depends on the context. Um, but but yeah, so. You've got safeties like Smith and Sandejo, and you mentioned it with with linebackers, but it's also true with the safeties where they start up on the line and then they invert and they move up to a single high. Harrison Smith might start 
on the right edge of the line. And then at the snap, he drops 15 yards and he gets in position as a deep middle safety. And all of a sudden, what the quarterback thought was maybe a blitz look now has eight dropping in the coverage and or, or probably more more like seven dropping in the coverage. And all of a sudden it, it changes everything and he's got to think. And the more you make that quarterback think, if he doesn't have quick processing, all of a sudden he's more apt to make a mistake. Um, and, and that kind of stuff can really wreak havoc on a quarterback. If you remember the, the Zach Robinson episode from a few weeks ago, he talked about what the first thing that he did as a quarterback at Oklahoma State and in the pros, he was taught, check the safeties. Is it middle of the field open? Is it middle of the field closed? That's the first thing you have to do. Are we single high? Are we split? Are we zero safety? What's going on here? Well, that quarterback's going to get to the line. They're going to be like, oh, look, it's middle of the field open. It looks like they're going to blitz. And then at the snap, you all of a sudden have a safety back there who has the range of Harrison Smith that's able to you know, kind of play over the top of any deep route that you thought you had open at the snap. And all of a sudden, as a quarterback, you got to be able to make a quick decision on the fly. And there's not a lot of quarterbacks who can do that very well. Absolutely. What's impressive to me in that regard is that you know, again, from an evaluation standpoint, they use that to their advantage when they sort of do that sort of role where they, you get the safety, you know, oftentimes walk down. What that does for them is that gives them an opportunity to get a good, you know, read really from the offensive line in terms of runner pass and diagnose what's happening in front of them from an offense or, you know, from a defensive perspective of what the offense is doing. When they get that read, it makes a run defense significantly easier because now you have essentially a box player that also it has sort of, you know, deep field responsibilities, but the flexibility and the versatility and quite frankly, the athletic ability to be an in the box potential run defender. And at the same time to get the appropriate visual keys to play assignment based football on the back end. That's just rare, you know, across the league whether we're talking about defensive linemen, linebackers, or safeties. Ideally, when you get you know a safety that can do it, that can defend the back half of the field and simultaneously be a valuable run defender, because aside from just bringing another guy in the box, Harrison Smith is a hitter. He, contact is not an issue there. So when you can bring those guys in the box and make them sort of pseudo-run defenders when necessary, and at the same time, like you mentioned, roll the, the coverage or invert safeties pre- and post-snap, you just increase the multiplicity of that defense tenfold and what you can do. And at the same time, they've invested in young, impressive, for the most part, uh, strong cornerbacks that can handle some sort of you know boundary responsibilities one-on-one. So even if those safeties make a mistake, there's still other players to sort of redirect and, and minimize that risk that's being taken. So one of the things that makes a Mike Zimmer defense famous, the thing that got talked about a couple of years ago was this double mug front or when when Zimmer would pressure both a gaps with the linebackers. And I think what you're describing is exactly that, where you get the linebackers up on the line of scrimmage. Uh, and in this case, it's going to be Kendricks and Barr uh, or maybe Kendricks and Gideon. But they're going to be pressuring the double a gaps and they're going to send both players and one players and no players. Or in some cases, they'll do what Bill Belichick calls a rain blitz where the the center will look one way and whichever way the center looks is going to let the other linebacker know to rush. So if Richburg, if we're in a half slide protection and Richburg slides to the left, well, if Barr is in the, in the right A gap, then he's going to rush because that's where Richburg didn't go. It's kind of like an option blitz at the very center of the line. And it can be really, really effective, but you never know which, which set of linebackers, which linebacker is going to come 
and and it really creates some havoc for the interior of that offensive line. It's going to be a tough, tough assignment for Richburg in his very first real game for the 49ers. And quarterbacks are told, you know, especially against blitz, you know, throw where the blitz came from, replace him. So when a quarterback feels like he can identify the blitz pre-snap, he can he can begin to, you know, audible or check into various routes and put people on hot routes that take them directly to where he expects that blitz to come from with that double A gap pressure. And it seems so basic. And it really is. I mean, you see Pop Warner teams running this, but it's so effective when you can get elite athletes that process, right? I mean, the, the time that it takes them to mentally identify where the center is looking and then fire their feet into motion. By that time, these guys are such freak athletes that it's so effective at such a rudimentary level. It makes it incredibly difficult. Weston Richburg is going to have his hands full, his you know his inside hand, if you will, if he's if they're in that half slide, sliding right or sliding left. He's going to have to have a really strong inside hand this week because that's going to really be the linebacker that comes. And there may even be a little bit of cat and mouse there, you know, similar to a quarterback looking off uh, a safety. I wouldn't be surprised if they're if they're prepping Richburg to be able to. Uh, you know, be able to separate hands and, and head and feet and be able to really spread himself, quite frankly, in multiple directions so that he might give a look that then counteracts or rather if he looked right, the, you know, the, the linebacker in the left A gap is telling is, is told to rush and instead Rich, Richburg redirects across to that. There's definitely going to be uh, some gamesmanship involved with that. So talk to me about some of the key players to watch, because I know that that line that you really, really enjoy breaking down linebackers and you broke down linebackers for the Bleacher Report NFL. Was it NFL 1000 or NFL 100? NFL 1000. That's correct. Yeah. And and so the the linebackers from Minnesota, they've got some good ones, but they've also got some places to target. And Kyle Shanahan, if there's one thing he does well, is he targets a weak spot in a defense and he's able to go after that. Uh, very, very effectively. So talk to me about the linebackers and where Kyle Shanahan might be able to pick up some ground against this really, really talented defense. So as mentioned, Eric Kendricks is probably a top seven linebacker in the league when completely healthy. He's the kind of player that can play in the box, make impressive stops against the run. But he's also hyper-athletic and has the ability to cover you know, swing passes, man up running backs one-on-one, can even play a little bit of that sort of pseudo-slot defenders, receivers work across the middle of the field. He can pick them up and run with them, which is really impressive. He's a player that uh, Shanahan's probably looking at to uh, identify as sort of, not necessarily the read, but they're going to attack uh, Kendricks as sort of the decoy, right? Put a lot of stuff in his face and get him working uh, completely away from where they really want the ball to go. The guy that they have to identify and match up as much as possible one-on-one and quite frankly expose is Ben Gideon. He's the weak side linebacker out of Michigan. He's uh, 6'2", I think uh, just above 240. Just doesn't have the athleticism that modern day NFL linebackers do. He's really a, a hustle and effort kind of player uh, that is going to fill gaps in run support. He's going to fight through contact just fine. But if Shanahan can get him matched up individually one-on-one against any of the running backs, I think they've got an advantage there, particularly against Brita and really Juszczyk. I think that they'll be able to uh, sort of show this you know, so base formation, if you will, or so, sort of some of these two back formations that much of uh, much of the Vikings defense will probably be expecting run more often than not. And that's likely fair given the loss of Jarek McKinnon. But if they can use uh, 
use check in terms of, you know, sort of as a receiver with some of those sort of, you know, Texas or angle routes that you might normally expect, or even some of the speed outs that break towards the flats, get him isolated against Gideon one-on-one, uh, particularly working uh, away from sort of the middle of the field. I think they're going to find a lot of success early on. I would not be surprised if Juszczyk becomes, you know, one of the, or, or ends the game with uh, some of the most targets on the entire team. Ben Gideon, while he was top 10 in terms of overall pro football focus grade on the, on the defense for the Minnesota Vikings, his coverage grade was where he lacked the most. That and tackling. His 62.3 coverage grade, not great. So that uh, definitely can be a, a part of the reason could be his athleticism. But if you're going to target one of their linebackers, that's where you want to target them. You don't want to target him in the run game. You want to come out with run personnel and you want to throw, throw, throw. Again, we're going to pour some out for McKinnon here because he really would have been good. He really would have been good. Oh, this is, yeah, that, that matchup is tailor-made for him, which, you know, when you look at the rest of the Vikings' defense, that's, that's, a, tough, that's a tough sell for an offense week one. But uh, Gideon is somebody that McKinnon, I, I feel like, could have really worked. He was probably circling that one, feeling pretty good about it. Yeah, you know, you look at the rest of their linebackers, and Anthony Barr doesn't have a great coverage grade. It seems like most of, you know, the, their grades overall are pretty good, but it seems like it's it's because of one area, whether it be Anthony Barr's pass rushing, uh, whether it be Ben Gideon's kind of run defense, uh, or whether it be, you know, something else, whether it be Eric Hendricks. Eh, Eric Hendricks is kind of just average across the board. You're looking at individual players that can be exploited in the passing game, and I think if I'm Kyle Shanahan, that's where I'm looking to exploit because I'm probably not going to go after someone like, oh, I don't know, best safety in the league, Harrison Smith. Uh, that's just someone I'm not going to go against often. If I'm going to go against a, a defensive back, it's probably going to be Trey Waynes. That's probably going to be the person that you're going to target. And so you're looking at a matchup of Marquise Goodwin and Trey Waynes that could end up pretty favorable for Marquise Goodwin. Absolutely. And, and quite frankly, the Vikings v- evaluation of Trey Waynes, you know, was sort of uh, the proof in the pudding there with Mackenzie Alexander. They've got Xavier Rhodes. I don't know that Trey Waynes is sort of the, uh, I don't know that they view him as the guy. And there's very few players throughout the league that could match up one-on-one with Marquise Goodwin or, or really even with safety help uh, deal with the speed of Marquise Goodwin. Trey Waynes is not one of them and he's not really close, I don't think. So if you're looking at a defensive back that you've got to attack, you know, as I th- I think given the uh, skill set of Trey Waynes that you'll see a lot of, of, of serious off coverage there. I wouldn't be surprised if Goodwin works a lot of those uh, short to intermediate routes. You see a lot of deep comebacks towards the sidelines. You see some of those uh, dig routes, you know, the 12 to 13 yard dig routes where he can really just sort of sit down underneath that coverage just beyond the linebackers. It's going to be impressive to see, again, this sort of cat and mouse game where there's an expectation of what a player like Goodwin can do versus uh, what Trey Waynes can do from a skill set standpoint. To see how the coaches on both sides of the ball really try to manipulate those matchups as much as possible, either to exploit them or to minimize them, it's going to be interesting. Certainly, I think the one person that you look at that defense and you go, we've got to stay away from in the passing game is Harrison Smith. Just for the sake of you don't give an opportunity, you don't give an elite player an opportunity to make a play on the ball that could swing games the other direction. Trey Wayne's last season gave up an NFL quarterback rating of 92.3, which is not great. Not Not great at all. Yeah. Five TDs, two picks. Uh, Yeah. That's, that's the area. If you're going to target a cornerback that you're going to target, unless of course, Tremaine Brock gets on the field, uh, in which case uh, let's go ahead and throw at him for old time's sake. Yeah. So let's let's get to, 
Yeah. <laughs> Let's get to the offense that the, the Vikings are going to put out on the field because this is going to be an interesting offense. They, they're moving on from uh, offensive coordinator Pat Shermer and are going to John DeFilippo's offense. And of course, he is the offense du jour after having the, been the quarterback's coach for the Philadelphia Eagles. And so now he comes from the Andy Reid and by extension, Bill Walsh coaching tree. And he's going to run an offense that is very, very quarterback friendly. And of course, the quarterback this year is Kirk Cousins, the 49ers quarterback that was not to be, if you will. So I guess the first question here is, what are your, what's your gut impression on, on Kirk Cousins? Do you think he's great quarterback upgrade? Do you think he's somewhere in the middle? Or do you think that he's more of a product of his supporting cast? I think he's somewhere in the middle. I think the reality is that, you know, two or three years ago, as is Kirk Cousins sort of really started to what looked to be sort of begin an ascension, if you will, at that time, it felt like quarterback play was down. And the quarterback play in the league, at least in the last two or three years, really two years, has taken a major swing up with players like Patrick Mahomes, Deshaun Watson, Carson Wentz, Jared Goff with a wonderful coaching staff to support him. I mean, the, the overall quarterback play feels like it's on the rise. And I think that's pushed Kirk Cousins down a little bit. The reality is that, you know, the market for quarterbacks is what it is. And if you think he's your guy and you feel like you've got an elite defense, and he's probably going to do, you know, exactly. I think he's sort of the guy that does exactly what you ask. I don't know that he's ever going to do a whole lot more. I don't know that he's sort of this transcendent player. Um, you know, just looking at the contract on the whole, it makes me a little nervous. But if he, if, if you think he's your guy, then I suppose you have to pay him like he is. To me, I think he's, you know, probably top 20, somewhere in between 13 to 20. I mean, any given week, those guys can sort of boomer bust. I don't know that he is a major, major upgrade over Case Keenum, like uh, many appeared to make it believe or, or make it seem. But I also think that uh, DiFilippo is a really impressive coach. And aside from being sort of an offensive coordinator that's getting a lot of run, his name has been hot in terms of head coaching for the last two or three years. And this is a guy that's going to continue to get legitimate looks to be a head coach very soon. So certainly there's a system in place there that will support him. They've got a young running back. They've got two very good route runners out at wide receiver. So I don't know that Cousins has to do a whole lot and, and his perception will probably stay right about the same. Yeah, I think he's probably going to have a good year this year because I, I do think he's a quarterback that is a bit more dependent on his offense than he is going to elevate his offense. He was a pro football focused court, like fourth cluster quarterback last year. He had high percentage of big time throws, really positively graded throws, the difficult throws, but he also had a really high percentage of turnover, turnover worthy throws. So he was in that Jameis Winston cluster, believe it or not, last year. But a couple years before that, and last year, he was a cluster two quarterback. So he was, you know, a, a much better quarterback. And I think that speaks more to his supporting cast. Now, when we think of the offense that the that they're going to run in, in Minnesota, I think they're going to do a couple things that feed into what Cousins does really well. Number one, I think this is an offense that is going to rely on pre-snap reads to get the quarterback in favorable positions. And that's something that that Cousins, that Cousins does really well. I'm just combining his names, Kirk and Cousins, Cousins. Uh, but I think that he can ID blitzes and beat them. He averaged 9.3 yards per attempt, which was the third highest among qualifying quarterbacks. He had a passer rating of 109.8, uh, and he had the fifth most yards of any quarterback all season against the Blitz. So he's going to be able to say like, okay, yeah, that Blitz is not exotic. I can figure this out pre-snap and throw into the Blitz. I think he's accurate when players are open. 
which depends on scheme and receivers. And I think DeFilippo is going to scheme receivers open, much like Kyle Shanahan uh, schemes receivers open. He's well below average when throwing in a tight coverage. He's below average when the defender's closing, and he's above average when he when his receiver is wide open. So hopefully the Niners do not leave a lot of wide receivers wide open. And I think that uh, he's going to be really, really good on play action. Last year, the uh, his team ran 21.3% of plays uh, with play action. Wentz, which was DiFilippo's offense last year, was 22.5%. So Cousins was right around the area where DiFilippo wants to run. And when Kirk Cousins ran play action, his quarterback rating was 118.7. Without play action, it was 87.4. So much, much better quarterback using play action. And I think that's what DiFilippo's going to do. I think that's what the Vikings offense is going to look like this year. It's going to rely on Cousins to be smart pre-snap. It's going to allow him to throw to wide open wide receivers because of the scheme that he employs. And he's going to use have you play action. You put those three things together with a quarterback who excels in those areas. And, and I think that you're right, that, that Kirk Cousins is going to look like the old Kirk Cousins this year because of the supporting cast and because of the offensive system that he's in. I mean, the name of the game, especially you know with his Vikings defense, I think is just be uh, you know a facilitator, and I don't mean that in a bad way, right? Some elite point hey man, guard. I was a NBA I was is. a facilitator as a job for several years. I I wouldn't consider that a knock at all, man. That's a skill. Exactly. So I mean, you know, if his job is just spread the ball out, you know, to guys like you mentioned, when his receiver is open, he's above average at getting the ball there. I think exactly what you said, that if they can use that run game to influence linebackers, to get Kirk Cousins uh, a little bit of movement in the box so that he has an opportunity to identify some spacing at the second level, then it's just spread it out and run the offense as it's given to you. And the benefit to that is that there's some consistency in that. There's, you know, there's not a lot of boomer bust in that. It's, it's fairly consistent and it's, easy for a coach to rely on that and to begin morphing or shaping an offense with that understanding that that's where a quarterback can and will excel. It's a fairly, like you mentioned, straightforward playing style and ability that a coach like Filippo is going to maximize and going to find a way to make that continually be uh, sort of the strength of their team. And the defense is going to hold teams to under 20 points a game more often than not. So they don't really need a whole lot of production on offense to, you know, uh, do the most important part, which is quite frankly, win the game. And it sounds like Kirk Cousins is like the fully realized version of early career Alex Smith. If Alex Smith didn't have a bajillion different coordinators and a head coach that threw him under the bus, it, it, it feels like that's like the Kirk Cousins kind of career early on is where he would have been. And, and that's not necessarily a bad place to be. It's just not, you know, one of the elite quarterbacks that, that you hope you hit on. Now, one of the pre-snap things that, G- that DiFilippo is, of course, now famous for is the, the run play option, the RPO. So let, let's talk a little bit about those RPOs, what they are, and, and whether or not we think we're going to see lots of them in this game. Because that's one thing that the, the Eagles made famous this offseason. Everyone's been talking about RPOs. Do you think the Vikings are going to run a lot of RPOs with Kirk Cousins? I think so. And I think, again, like we just mentioned, he's he's going to excel when they're able to put uh, identifiable defenders in conflict. And that's really what an, uh, an RPO does. It's, it helps a quarterback give an identified read, if you will, or put a specific defender in conflict that the quarterback can identify and then use as sort of a trigger, if you will, to make the decision. And doing that 
just speeds up Kirk Cousins' processing and his ability to then deliver the ball sort of based on these triggers that the defense is unintentionally determining for them. So ultimately, when, you, when you're identifying an RPO, I think what you want to look at on, on film or on TV copy is whether or not the offensive line blocks it like a run. Are they two or sometimes three yards downfield? Because even though that's technically illegal, the refs usually don't call it if it's kind of close. Uh, it's only when the offensive lineman is really, really far down the line that, that you're going to probably get that call. But if the line is blocking like it's a true run, then that's and, and the quarterback passes the ball, that's probably an RPO. And a quarterback has two decision points on RPOs. Number one, are we light in the box? Because if they're light in the box, you, you hand it off to the running back and, and you let him do his thing because you've got numbers in the box. Or sometimes on some RPOs, it is going to be, just like you say, keying off of a coverage defender, whether it be a linebacker or a safety, uh, and then making sure that he's out of position and throwing the backside slant or the backside seam. And I think that Kirk Cousins is very, very adept at that pre-snap read and quick processing. And I do think that they'll probably run a few RPOs. And, and that's going to put stress on some of our intermediate coverage defenders. It'll be interesting to see how the 49ers sort of box players, the defensive line, inside linebackers, have been coached up to identify those, those reads that they get from the offensive line. Because like you mentioned, that RPO look, oftentimes you're getting a run-heavy look immediately post-snap. And we can get those immediate box defenders to sort of commit one way or the other even when they're not the read guy it just becomes even there's even more spacing there's even more uh sort of an opportunity to dictate what the defense is doing and like you mentioned two to three yards downfield these guys are getting away with it in terms of the spacing and and you know what many teams i'm sure would like to be illegal man downfield the ball is out so hot because the trigger is predetermined that Refs couldn't call it in real time, even if they wanted to. When we see it sort of, you know, uh, the second day and we're able to reevaluate or when we see it in slow-mo, we're able to reevaluate. This is happening so fast on the field. The ball's out so fast with such precision timing that it really becomes sort of something that they kind of have to let slide a little bit, if you will, and an error on the side of caution or risk stopping plays very, very often. All right, so so far we're looking at a Vikings defense that is the Mike Shanahan equivalent if he were to look at himself in the mirror. You've got a multiple defense that gives you a lot of very similar-looking fronts, but then at the snap shifts into complicated defenses, whether they be zone or man, that can confuse the quarterback. You've got a team that doesn't show blitz or that shows blitz often, but doesn't actually blitz a whole hell of a lot, but is still confusing as all holy get out, uh, including their double mug front, which are gonna, where they're going to put linebackers up on the line of scrimmage and confuse the offensive line. And you've got maybe an area where you can attack them when it comes to the linebackers in that intermediate area with maybe someone like Juszczyk uh, or maybe someone like Brita if he learned how to catch a football this offseason. And then on, on offense, you've got a Vikings team that has a new offensive coordinator that can do things and structures an offense around what a quarterback does well. And you've got Kirk Cousins, who's also got new, to, new toys to play with when it comes to Stephon Diggs and Adam Thielen, two really, really good wide receivers. And we haven't even talked about Dalvin Cook, who's coming off of an ACL injury, but he is still an electric running back, a young running back, uh, even if he's a little deficient in the passing game. So what the hell does this all mean for the 49ers, and how can they pull this game out if they're going to win that week one tilt in Minnesota? I think it's a matter of the young players in particular stepping up and reading keys appropriately, 
rallying to the football, understanding that you don't play, you know, hero ball, if you will, and get the appropriate assignments and alignments because you know Kyle Shanahan is one of the bright offensive minds as well. And and what that does is it means that he sort of has an ability to understand how teams might attack his defense as well. I'm sure they've likely been uh, coaching this up a lot. I think the 49ers defensive front has to be dominant this week against a weak uh, Vikings offensive line really across the board for the most part. I think they are going to have to really uh, particularly Solomon Thomas is going to need to show as that interior uh, rush defender because the absence of a true Leo to me says the plan is Buckner and Solomon Thomas are going to be multiple in where they align, what their assignment is, and multiple multiple in their ability to get to the quarterback from in a variety of manners. And I think that's what it's going to come down to, quite frankly, who can win the line of scrimmage on both sides of the ball. The Vikings have an elite defensive line. 49ers offensive line is going to need to show up. And at the same time, their defensive line is going to need to take advantage of, uh, quite frankly, a pretty weak opponent in the Vikings offensive line. Yeah, I think ultimately this is going to put pressure on the 49ers linebackers right away. I I think you mentioned it when you said the young players have got to play like they're vets. I'm looking at someone like Fred Warner, who's getting the start at linebacker. He's going to have to stay disciplined. The the reason that I was so excited about Fred Warner as a player is because it it shows kind of a future thinking perspective about what coverage and what linebackers should be able to do in a modern NFL. And this is going to be test number one. If the Vikings do end up running a lot of run pass options, then this is going to be an area where I would expect Fred Warner because of his speed and his coverage ability and what he displayed in college to to actually excel and to succeed. So I'm going to be looking for Fred Warner to stay disciplined, to have good eye discipline and not get sucked into all of the kind of things that you're going to see that the Vikings do, especially when it comes to run pass options. You're, You're talking about the, 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 the front of the 49ers. And I think again, you're right because I think that, Kirk Cousins is going to make the team limit their blitzes because he can beat the blitz because he has good pre-snap processing. But I think that the team's going to need to be able to get pressure with their front four. The Vikings are going to start Danny Isadora at center. This is the second game that Isadora has ever played at center, the first being the final preseason game. This is a change because I I think their center's injured or they got some injuries along the interior. And so you have Isadora playing in his second game ever at center a player who up to now has not graded very well. I mean, this guy may be the only lineman that I think that graded worse than Jordan Devy. Both of his uh, his spot starts or his spot play last year, he graded in the 40s. And this uh, this preseason, too, you're like, oh, well, that was a regular season. Maybe he's improved. Yeah, this preseason, even against lesser competition, he's still graded in the 40s as well. You'd expect DeForest Buckner, if he's going to stay in the inside, to be able to dominate against the center. And even if DeForest Buckner moves to the edge you would expect anyone who's in the middle, whether it be Sheldon Day or whether it be Solomon Thomas, to be able to you know, kind of match up well against someone like Isadora. And, and so I think the Niners, if they're going to pull this game out, have got to get pressure from the interior by just rushing four. You know that Buckner is going to be the defender that gets double teamed, both in the run game and uh, they're going to send plenty of support uh, his direction in pass pro. So players like Sheldon Day, like Solomon Thomas, who you know, may have done some overthinking as a rookie and didn't quite, I think, live up to the third overall pick. Those are the types of players that are going to have to step up this week that you'll see uh, Buckner's impact by the play of Solomon Thomas and Sheldon Day. If if Buckner's able to routinely draw the attention and continue to, uh, you know, hold steady, if, if you will, Sheldon Day, 
you know, even DJ Jones, if he gets in as an interior pass rusher with a little bit of energy and, and juice once in a while, Solomon Thomas, those are going to be the players that really make a dramatic impact in on, you know, on this outcome uh, based on a weak and quite frankly, inexperienced Danny Isidore inside at center. I think it's interesting to note that the Vikings are feeling, I don't know if comfortable is the right word, but you know, second game uh, starting, understanding that DeForest Buckner is working on the interior of the defense that you're facing week one is a little impressive, uh, confident, maybe borderline arrogant, uh, given Isidora's play. I think that the 49ers have to be uh, excited about that matchup in a way that, you know, in some of the other ones don't. That one leans quite heavily in their favor, in my opinion. Their best offensive lineman based on pro football focus grade is Mike Remmers, who moved from tackle to guard last season. His overall grade was 70.5. They don't have a player that grades above 65 outside of Mike Remmers. You got Rife at left tackle, 64.1. A reminder that any grade in the 60s is average, just average. Any grade below 60, from 50 to 60, below average. And then below that, you're Jordan Devitore territory. So Riley Rife, 64.1. Brett Jones at left guard. Danny Isadora, 43.4. Mike Remmers, 70.5. And Rashad Hill, 58.3. This is a team that should give up plenty of pressures against the 49ers defensive line. If the Niners can't get pressure against this offensive line, uh, I don't know where they're going to be able to get pressure. Now, the second thing I think the Niners have got to do is they've got to ace their defensive back test because we've talked about Diggs and Thielen already. These are two great wide receivers, uh, and they play very, very well. Thielen, especially in the slot against K1 Williams. I think this is going to be the first real test for Akella Witherspoon and Sherman and K1, and I think they've got to pass it for the Niners to have a chance. They do, and I'll add to that that Kyle Rudolph is a a solid tight end as well. So as much as Fred Warner is going to have to be disciplined in run support, he's going to have to be disciplined in coverage as well. Rudolph is a good middle of the field receiver who can run the seam with a little bit of speed, certainly with plenty of power. So Warner is going to be tested. I would anticipate a few times as well, a little bit of welcome to the NFL rookie moment there as a player that certainly has the athleticism to match up. uh, But Rudolph with a little bit of the sort of vet savvy and uh, tactical, technical advantage. It'll be interesting to see how how they identify uh, Warner as a coverage defender and or Malcolm Smith and uh, attempt to isolate that matchup. Thielen, what's most impressive to me about him is just his technicality as a route runner is so advanced. And what he does, I think, better than most is this idea of understanding leverage and really lean into contact. Uh, so often it, it's, you know, it's uncomfortable for players to sort of lean into that contact and to uh, purposefully initiate physicality. He's a player that understands leverage, balance, and an ability to uh, lean into contact. And when I say lean in, I mean really with his upper body to to utilize it as a leverage and uh, manipulative that he can uh, gain an advantage from. It's really high level stuff for a player that's you know, really still ascending. Well, we, we've talked a bit before on the podcast about how Shanahan really likes his wide receivers to separate. And I think Adam Thielen would be a, a great Shanahan wide receiver because there's some that separate with speed. There are some that separate with power at the top of routes. I'm, I'm thinking about Pierre Garçon or Anquan Bolden, even Crabtree to a certain degree separates with, with kind of power along the top. But y- then you've got players that 
are a, a bit savvy and they're not really the strongest in the whole wide world, but they're able to, with body lean, be able to still separate at the top of routes or separate through the top of their break in a way that's really, really awesome. And I think Adam Thielen is, is a great example of that. I think Shanahan would love having someone like Thielen on his team because of the fact that he's a technician. And it is going to be a hell of a, a hell of a task for Sherman and Witherspoon to play these wide receivers. Uh, and I think you're absolutely right about Warner and, and Smith. And Smith has got to earn his 23 mil at some point. Uh, and, and what better way than week one, right? Absolutely has to earn that money. Or at some point, he's going to be another one of the guys that we're looking at uh, some of those contracts that get cut earlier than anticipated. I wouldn't be surprised if that's a player that uh, is replaced fairly quickly once Reuben Foster returns. Oh, we'll get to that question when we get to the lightning round, because I, I do have a question about the, the number of times that uh, I think Malcolm Smith is going to is going to start this year. But I think the last key for me is really going to the thing I'll be looking at is going to be uh, Mike Person and Mike McGlinchey, uh, the two Mikes, Mike and Mike, w- whether or not they're going to be able to succeed against Sheldon Richardson and Daniil Hunter, because that's a tough assignment for two brand new linemen. And, and those two players are going to be a handful, whether it is straight up rushing or whether they're going to play uh, their stunt games that they like to play with TE stunts on the edge. These are going to need to be two, you know, a, a rookie and a brand new starting right guard who played at center primarily last year, who beat Garnett for the starting role. And now they're going to be tested with some of the most difficult interior, you know, kind of both edge and interior rushers that you can get in the NFL. And they're going to need to perform well in order to keep Jimmy Garoppolo upright so that he can attack those linebackers in the middle of the field. Because if they cannot and the Vikings are able to get home with just their front four, it's going to be a long day for the 49ers. Just in terms of stylistically, you're getting speed, power, uh, technical ability, hand usage. I mean, just between those two, you're checking off a lot of boxes that... Whether they're working as you know isolated one-on-one pass rushers or, like you mentioned, running some stunts or games up front, there's going to have to be an impressive bit of communication between Person and McGlinchey, I think. Uh, a good uh, set of sort of identifying what's happening post-snap and an ability to pass games off. Because Daniel Hunter, as I mentioned earlier, incredibly, incredibly uh, impressive young pass rusher really really long arms great athletic ability and bend that is going to stress McGlinchey and he's the kind of player that needs to uh, continue to get better as a as a pass protector so great first week one test for him that could uh, highlight a lot of his continuing issues and at the same time could be a wonderful confidence boost for him to walk into one of arguably the best uh, you know, sort of edge defenders in the league. And if he has some success, what a great jumping off point for him to sort of begin building this rookie season. Well, his preseason has been a little weird for McGlinchey because everyone thought coming into the league that he'd be a better run blocker than he was a pass blocker. Turns out, in the preseason, it's been exactly the opposite. He's been a better pass blocker than he has been a run blocker. So if the Niners end up being down, you know, into the third and fourth quarters and he's got to pass block more, this may be a hell of a test, especially with the Vikings pressure packages. So overall, the, the, the Vikings are favored by six. What's your prediction for the game? Do you think the Niners, A, win outright or at the very least, B, cover the spread? I think they cover the spread. I think it's a really tough week one challenge. I don't know that I believe that uh, they have the weapons to week one sort of gel like you'd hope in efforts to beat the Vikings, who could arguably be uh, are arguably a Super Bowl contender. I would say that I think they cover the spread. 
I'd give the game something like 21-17 Vikings. All right. So I actually don't think they cover, and I and I definitely don't think they win. I think they're going to be tested early in this game. And, and I look at that defense, and that defense has been – the, the biggest components of that defense have been together now for like four or five years. They are – they have PhDs in their own defense, and their defense is as complicated as Shanahan's offense is complicated, and I just think they're going to run into a team that is more experienced, that is more tested, and has seen a lot of the things that Shanahan has done before, and, and probably are equipped to handle them in a way that not very many defenses are because they're able to communicate in ways that not very many defenses are, and I think they have enough talent to match up against the 49ers offense and I think there's enough question marks along the the Niners both offensive line and and that is going to make things a little bit difficult for them I think if the Niners have a chance in this game it's going to be because their defense is able to stymie the Vikings offense because that's the new part that's the new thing and so I I think this could be to your point kind of more of a defensive slugfest than people expect and and so I I don't think the Niners cover I do think they end up losing by a touchdown but it's probably going to be like a hopefully, if all things go well, a late kind of third or fourth quarter touchdown and that ends up putting the Vikings over the top. I think that what's important, you know, and as much as you'd like to hope for a win, identifying or or really uh, assessing expectations that this is a team that is good as you'd like them or we'd like them to be in terms of the 49ers and coming off a nice end of the season run, they're still young. And like you mentioned, the Vikings defense has, you know, the majority of those players have three or four years in that system. The 49ers are entering year two with a lot of young players entering year one or year two. So this is a great test. It's a great opportunity for them to sort of really get a barometer about where they stack up in this league moving forward and, and how, uh, how much they might be able to compete throughout the year. But Tempering expectations and understanding that you're facing arguably a Super Bowl contender is going to be important in regards to a season-long bit of optimism and uh, understanding. All right, so that's going to be our preview for week one. Uh, In future weeks, we'll do like a review of week one and then a preview the next week, so it won't be so heavy on the opposing team stuff, but it was good, I think, being able to look at another team and and look at what they did and, and get a little bit deeper in a team that's not the Niners. So I think that was uh, it was kind of fun. The reality is also that many teams won't be quite as good as the Vikings. And in some cases, it's going to be, this is about offensive line, let's beat them up. And we won't have to go too deep into the the uh, discussing how impressive the Vikings are. Yeah, because they, they're, they're a good team, man. They're really, really good. And honestly, my favorite part about the Vikings is uh, Kyle Rudolph's gloves. I love that he wears the all-yellow gloves. It is both easy to identify him on the field when he's split out wide and I just think it looks awesome. The purple jersey and the, the yellow gloves. I think it looks really, it's a good look. I love it. I like it. it. I'm going to go ahead and put that out there. It is that sort of two-tone, uh, you know, pop of color that looks really good. I've actually texted a few times with David Morgan, the backup tight end for the Vikings, when he was originally a sort of going through the draft process, I reached out to him or rather he reached out to me because I was scouting him and, and rather impressed with his film from uh, University of Texas, San Antonio. So I've checked in with him quite a bit, uh, uh, especially throughout his rookie season. He's kind of now uh, a third year player really established there as their backup tight end and run defender. He's got some long hair that makes it nice to identify too. So those tight ends are, are uh, looking good out on the field. It's always nice to be able to identify the uh, the studs when they're out there. I got swaggy tight ends. I like it. It's like a, it's like a real football 
swaggy tight ends. That's 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 what you want from a Mike Zimmer team. I feel like if any team is going to have swag from the tight end position, it's a Mike Zimmer team because that guy is like no bullshit. He's not going to mess around. Yeah, there's no way that he would let it go beyond the tight ends. Yeah, that's why <laughs> Stefan Diggs and Adam Thielen are their uh, you know vociferous receivers if they yeah. have any at all. All right, so let's get to the lightning round. Let's get to just a couple of quick questions that both let us know a little bit more about you uh, and then give us a bit more of your thoughts around the Niners uh, and the Niners season thus far, especially with some of the happenings that have gone on since the last couple of preseason games. So give me your first reaction, lightning round answer. Let's go. Number one, your fantasy draft pick that you're most excited about. So not necessarily a Niner, but just the guy that you've drafted that you're like, I'm most excited about getting this guy. This is going to sound a little homerish, but uh, I'm in two leagues. The second one I drafted the other night uh, after uh, McKinnon, McKinnon had got hurt, and I took Kyle Juszczyk, and I think that he's going to be a, a strong flex player. I think he's going to get, a, a, quite frankly, a lot of receptions in this offense this year. Probably a little bit of homerish. Um, the other ones are top names that most people know, so I'm going to lean uh, with Juice there in hopes that maybe I'm putting a little good juju into the universe and uh, I can be rewarded for having the cojones to draft a fullback. Man, you, uh, I don't know what league do you play in that actually has the position offensive weapon, but that's a, it's a good league structure. That's all I'm saying. Uh, all right, and I ask everyone this because it's something I'm super interested in. What's the best cheeseburger you've ever had? There is a, a sort of, I don't know if you even call it fast food kind of burger joint here in California where I live, Northern California, called Ozzy's. And they do a. I swear to God, if you would have said In and Out, I probably would have punched you through this telephone. No, you know I love In and Out, but that's that's a go to. It's not the best burger I've ever had. Ozzy's has this uh, bacon uh, blue cheeseburger that uh, is just phenomenal. It's got the to me, it's the right amount of sort of greasy, make you feel like a, a loser, and at the same time, just that like uh, decent quality. So I'd say that Ozzy's bacon blue cheeseburger is the best I've ever had. All right, what's your record prediction for the 49ers this year? Go. Earlier in the year, I predicted 10 and 6. I think I'm still right around there, 9 and 7, depending on how the ball bounces a few ways. And if they can figure out a, a real replacement for McKinnon and not just sort of a placeholder. Speaking of McKinnon, more touches at the end of the year, Morris or Brita? Go. I'll take Brita. I think Morris will have more uh, rushing attempts, but I think Brita as a uh, pass catcher will give him the edge. I wouldn't be surprised to see it split something like, you know, 60-40 pretty close. All right, and over under number of game that Malcolm Smith plays, the line is set at five. Go. I'll take the under. Uh, I don't think he was great with the, the Raiders. I don't think he obviously has been great with the 49ers due to the, the injury. Uh, I don't not obviously not hoping for a player to get injured, but I think that if you're going to bet on upside and you want players to continue to develop in your system, then throw Fred Warner out there and let him run. All right, and last question, because Jimmy Garoppolo, of course, if you missed the interview on Matt Mayoko's podcast, you should definitely go give it a listen. He's been working on getting uh, Jimmy GQ on his podcast to interview him for a while. He succeeded. It was a good interview, but he tells us that he eats peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. He had one in hand when he entered in the interview room with Matt Mayoko. So in spirit of Jimmy Garoppolo and his peanut butter and jelly sandwich, I ask you, Jared, would you choose crunchy or smooth peanut butter on a PB&J? Go. On a PB&J, I'm going to go with smooth. If we're talking about desserts, I'll take crunchy in hopes that uh, the crunch adds a little bit more texture. 
Uh, I like both of those answers. I actually I have a soft spot in my heart for crunchy peanut butter, which is, I guess, ironic in the Alanis Morissette way. But uh, I like me some crunchy <laughs> peanut butter every now and again. I mean, there's nuance to this, right? I mean, there's you, you got to have both. Any balanced lifestyle appreciates both. What I like about crunchy uh, is that it's crunchy. And that you well, really yes, that, get that, the texture. That would there. be a thing with the crunchy peanut butter. It's that's uh, crunchy. Yeah, the the, uh, the word <laughs> the words just kind of came right to me, and I thought when I think about crunchy peanut butter being good, what do I think? And I think of crunch. And uh, in terms of what works for me, I would say crunchy peanut butter for desserts, smooth peanut butter on sandwiches. But I don't know that you could go wrong either way. And anybody that suggests you can is a fraud. Yeah, basically, I just I don't I don't like people who don't like peanut butter and people with peanut allergies. That don't even get me started. Epipens galore. Unfair. Uh, yeah. I know, I know. All right, well, that does it for this week's edition of the Better Rivals podcast. Jared, really appreciate you coming on, man. I'm glad we were able to make this work. Thank you so much for having me. Exciting to be here, week one on the precipice of hopefully an exciting 49er season. We haven't had this sort of energy in quite a while, which. Uh, we are either primed for a wonderful letdown or who knows, maybe this thing goes half decent and we can continue the fun. Who knows, man? Uh, let's, uh, let's do this again next week. Sounds great to me. Thanks again to everyone who tuned in. And as always, go Niners. Hey, I'm Anil Dash, and I'm the host of a new show called Function from the Vox Media Podcast Network and Glitch. This season, we're talking with experts about why our voting machines are so bad and how that might hurt our elections. We'll also talk with an animator to find out how popular dances from the real world end up in video games. And we're going to tackle the biggest question in tech. Why do so many celebrities use screenshots from that Apple Notes app to make their public apologies when they screw up? You can find new episodes of Function every Monday on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And thanks to Microsoft Azure for sponsoring Function.